I want to bring you greetings from Grace Community Baptist Church in North Providence, Rhode Island. Pastors Ventura and Buckley asked me to greet you and send their love for you. We have a long history with Pastor Nichols and with Adam as well, and uh, we love you as the people of God here. So greetings from the church. And uh, with that, it, it is a privilege for us as well just to be here. We love whenever we're out of town to find a place where God is honored in the midst and uh, always finding family amongst the people of God. But before we begin, let's, if you would, we bow our heads one time in prayer as we begin. Our God and our Father, we are thankful to be here this morning to worship you, to feast upon your word, to be guided and instructed by the things you have for us. We pray that you would bar the windows of this place, that the evil one would not come in and snatch up the word as it's preached, but that you would give to each one of us tender and receptive hearts to hear your truth and faith to believe and the will to follow and do what your word calls us to. We pray that you would help us, speaker and hearer alike then, that we would handle rightly sacred truth. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want to bring a message to you which I've entitled, Jesus Shows the Way. And uh, just as sort of an introduction here. Uh, questions are a great way of learning. Questions are among the chief mechanisms for learning. Some are asked by the learner or the seeker, and some are asked oftentimes by teachers. Uh, one set of questions is used to gather information. Another set of questions may be asked to illuminate the truth that is or should be known. And children will ask questions exploring their world. And uh, just a sample of these I've written down here. Daddy, who turns on the stars at night? What, Daddy, what if an elephant, and I've had some of these asked of me. Daddy, what if an elephant rides down the street on a motorcycle and crashes into our house? Where will we sleep? Mommy, are there really Martians? What makes the leaves green? Where do babies come from? Why do people die? Children ask all these kinds of questions, right? But the crowds of people that followed Jesus and his disciples also asked questions. They said such things as, Will you, at this time, restore the kingdom? Are you the Christ? Where are you going? Will you show us a sign? And the questions go on. But Jesus also asked questions. What do you want me to do for you? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter, do you love me? So all these questions. So today we want to look at a particular interchange between the teacher and a seeker. The seeker came asking questions, and our goal today is to learn the lesson that the seeker missed, even though the answer was given to him. So we will be looking today um, at Jesus and the rich young ruler, and I'm going to look at this uh, under several headings. I'll just read them off to you. Don't be scared by the number of headings. They're not lengthy individually, but Jesus shows the way through the right, showing the right desire the right question, the right source, the right analysis, the right way, and the wrong response. Now our passage for today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, is Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 22. And while you're going there, I'll just point out that the parallel portion in Matthew 19 tells us that this young man is a ruler, in which we don't see stated in this particular text for today. So we'll read 19, Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22. 
Matthew 19, verse 16. Now behold, one, in, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and set, go sell what you have and come and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And by the way, the parallel passage is Luke 18, 18. I gave that incorrectly. So we'll look first at this, the right desire in this passage. We look at verse 16 for a moment. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And I'm saying that this young man came with the right desire. The desire is evidenced by the fact that he came to Jesus. Just as perhaps some have come here today, desiring to know God, desiring to be reconciled to God, trying to figure out what is eternal life, how do I get it? This young man came with a desire. He came to the Lord Jesus. And the desire is evidenced by his willingness to do something, or at least he says he's willing to do it, right? He comes to Jesus, what good things shall I do? So that evidences his desire. He's saying, tell me what I need to do, I'll go and do it. It's, it's good desire. He's ready to take action to achieve the result that he wants. But again, it can be assumed that, again, that there are some here, perhaps in the same place as this rich young ruler, and by the way, I just stop here for a moment. This rich young ruler, he's an interesting case study because we think about what he has. He's young. He's wealthy. He has position and power. He seems to have it all, and yet he has nothing. He's, there's still a longing searching in his heart because there's something missing. Perhaps there's somebody here like that today. Somebody here who seems to have it all by the world's standard, but they're coming up empty. And they come, and they come to church trying to figure it out, as our brother sort of alluded to earlier. The desire stated here is eternal life, right? The verse says, he's a good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? But the passage doesn't really open up what eternal life is. It just kind of states that we should all know it. So I kind of boiled it down with a, a sense of what it is, and much more could be said. What is eternal life? It's never-ending, sinless blissful, holy, wonderful living in the very presence of Almighty God without fear because perfect love casts out fear. That's what he's looking for, at least in my understanding of it. So on the surface, this rich young ruler comes with the same kind of a question that we see in John chapter 6. And I'm just going to refer to John 6 verses 27 and 28 for a moment. In the, that John's rendering of the gospel, uh, Jesus had fed the multitudes, and then we hear this. Jesus saying, Do not labor for that which is perishable, which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, 
which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we shall work the works of God? It's a parallel kind of a question that we see coming there. So this is not unusual, but he has the right desire. Eternal life is the right desire. All right? We'll move secondly to the right question. I told you we wouldn't linger too long in these points. He has the right desire, and now he has the right question. Now, why is the question right? Why coming to the Lord Jesus and asking, what shall I do to have eternal life? Why is it the right question? Well, it's the right question because man does not inherently have eternal life. Man is born into this world with a sinful heart, a sinful record, in depravity, and he has not life. So the question is right because every one of us needs to have eternal life. It's not within us. We don't have it natively. Now, man does not possess life. Now, we just think about Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Romans three nineteen. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world may become guilty before God. See, that's the sense of it. He doesn't have eternal life. He's without, uh, without life. He's under judgment. He's come into the world as a child of wrath. Now, it's also the right question because of this. Not only does he acknowledge man's need of eternal life, but he internalizes it. He needs eternal life. This individual sinner needs eternal life. This individual sinner has a problem. This sinner at least is honest enough to acknowledge that he himself has need. So it's a good question for that reason. He does not have eternal life. He says he wants it. He doesn't have it. It's a good question for that reason. And I would just stop and say here, we all hear this when we're out talking to people, right? Well, we're all sinners, right? You, you hear that? Well, I'm, not, I'm no better than anybody else. We're all in this mess together. Well, that's all true, but it's not enough. To cover yourself almost as an excuse and a covering before God to say, well, I'm no worse than anybody else. Everybody around me is a sinner isn't good enough. You have to have a conviction in your heart that you are a sinner, that you deserve God's wrath, that you are in deep trouble unless somebody intervenes for you. You must understand that. So his question is a good question. What must I do? This rich young ruler does not come saying, look at who I am in my position and all that I have. I demand this. He comes seeking something he does not have. So the very asking of the question suggests that the rich young ruler has some level of fear, right? Think about this. Jesus is out ministering in a crowd. And this rich young ruler, presumably somewhat proud, with status, comes to him begging for an answer. He's humbled himself and sought out the teacher. He's got some level of fear, something driving him that he will come to get an answer to this burning question in his heart. So it is a good question. He must have and he must obtain that which he lacks. All right, so we're going to continue on then. We have the right desire and the right question, but he also comes to the right source. You think about it for a moment. If you want the answer to a question, where are you going to go? If you have a medical condition that's urgent, are you going to go to your Aunt Betty or your neighbor across the street? Are you going to go to a skilled physician to ask for help? Right? You're going to go to the right source. If your building is structurally breaking down, 
you don't go to the auto mechanic and see if he can help you, you know, fix up the foundation. You go to the expert. Well, who does this rich young ruler go to? He goes to the one who John says of him, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Right? He comes to the, the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the one who has all wisdom and all knowledge. He's, he's come to the right source. He's on, you know, he's on a good track here. He went to Jesus for some reason. Why did he go to Jesus? He must know something about the Lord Jesus, or he must have observed something about him in order to have come to him to seek the answer of this question. It's not a random chance meeting. Jesus is not sitting on a park bench, and the guy comes and sits next to him and just casually asks him a question. The Lord Jesus is ministering, and he seeks him out. He came to Jesus specifically and purposefully to find out from Jesus the answer to his question. So why did he come to Jesus? He came because of what he knew of the Lord Jesus. Well, you might say, well, there's a little bit of conjecture here. Am I making this up? Well, let's think about it. Based on his words in the text, what does he know about the Lord Jesus? He knows that Jesus is good, right? He comes to him, good teacher. He knows Jesus is good. He knows Jesus is a teacher. He, he understands that. He seems to know that Jesus has eternal life. Why would you come to someone and ask for the way to eternal life if you don't think that person has eternal life or knows the way? Right? So he knows all of this about Jesus. And he knows that Jesus is willing to help him. So he has observed something of Jesus' ministry, either directly or indirectly, and he knows something about him. And he comes to him for that reason. He has a need. Jesus has the answer. Jesus is good. He's a teacher. He has eternal life. And he helps people who comes to him. He doesn't turn any away that come to him, right? So what, but that's what he knew. But there were some things he didn't know about Jesus. And in some senses, the things he didn't know about Jesus are almost more important than what he does know. So what doesn't he know, based again on the account that we've been reading? Well, he doesn't know that Jesus is perfectly good, right? Because he says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do? I, I want to be like you. You're good. I want to be good. How can I be good? Right? He doesn't, he, he doesn't seem to know that Jesus is perfectly good. He also doesn't seem to know that Jesus has eternal life inherently within him. He hasn't earned it in a sense, but it, it is in him. He possesses life. And he doesn't seem to know that Jesus is the author and the giver of life. Because he asks about a subject, but he doesn't appeal to him. He doesn't recognize that Jesus is God. He must know this, but he doesn't know it. He doesn't know that rejecting Jesus is deadly dangerous. And I just stop for a moment, because anyone who rejects Jesus does it to his own eternal peril. All of this shows us clearly that Jesus is the best and the only one who can rightly answer this man's question. What answer is need, right? The, the disciples will at one point say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But this man has come to him. He's come to the very best source. So, so far, this, this account is going really well. He's got the right desire. He's got the right question. And he goes to the right source. We kind of expect a good uh, conclusion to this account. But we'll keep reading and see that it doesn't work out all that well for this man. 
So the next question, the next point here is the right analysis. And this gets a little nittier, grittier, if you will, but we'll look at this again. We look at verse 17. We can start in verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God, but one, that is God. But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. But we stop for a moment here. He asked the question again. We've seen that stated already. What shall I do to have eternal life? But Jesus stops him here for a moment. He said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Now, Jesus is not, not denying his deity here for a moment. If anything, we could make the argument that he's proclaiming it. But what he's saying to this rich young man, think about it. He says, what good thing shall I do that I'll have eternal life? How can I become good enough that God will have favor on me? Now, I hear this a lot because we do some door-to-door ministry in our church. And we knock on doors and talk to people. We ask them, what is your hope of uh, after you die? Well, I'm going to go to heaven. On what basis are you going to go to heaven? I've been pretty good. We hear it all day long. But hear Jesus' words. Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Hard stop. He, what the rich young ruler should have heard is, you are not good. You cannot be good. You will never be good enough to warrant God's favor and earn eternal life. Should have been a full, hard stop, but it wasn't. But we should learn that lesson. None of us here will ever get into heaven because we're good enough. If we're hanging our hats on that, we need to forget it. Not going to happen. Only God is good. We are not God, therefore we are not good. We need another way into heaven. All right, that's that part of it. But Jesus goes on. If you want to have eternal life, keep the commandments. Right? Now, I know for a moment, Jesus sets apart original sin here. Again, because Jesus knows the heart. He deals with this man's particular heart. Original sin is important. Our sinful nature is important, but he doesn't address it. He just says to the man, if you want to have life, keep the commandments. And now the man's heart is going to be on display for the whole world to say, to see. Right? Because you think about the commandments, the first and the second table of the law. The first table of the law is love towards God expressed towards to God, right? The second table of the, of the law is love to God expressed towards man. So it's all about love. And, and Jesus says, you want life, keep the commandments. And the man says, which ones? In other words, what's the minimum? How much, how little can I do and still get into heaven? How little love can I show to God and still get by? His heart is laid bare. The man is an evil heart of unbelief. Which ones? Right? I wonder if any of us are like that. Well, I want to obey God. I want to enjoy God in heaven. But I I don't want to do most of what he says in his word. Jesus said, the one who loves me is the one who has my commandments and keeps them. And for the believer, they're not a burden. Right? Because we love God. He's given us love in our hearts for him. But this man says, which ones? He wants to narrow it down. We'll get into this a bit further. All right, so Jesus then gives him some of the commandments. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now at this point, the rich young ruler should be broken and contrite in his heart. He should be weeping over all the times he's broken these commandments. But not this guy. 
The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth up. Wow, imagine that. This guy, this rich young ruler, he claims to be the first child born, aside from the Lord Jesus, who's perfect. He's kept all the commandments. He thinks that he has arrived. This guy has what I would call a Teflon conscience. You can't make anything stick on this guy. He never admits he's wrong. He doesn't acknowledge his faults. He doesn't see it at all. But you see, the issue is, man looks at the outward things, but God judges the heart. This man has a very poor view of God and his law, and a very high view of himself. He thinks he's okay. Sort of. He claims perfection. All right? However... When we get to the analysis, we see something slightly different. Because despite what he says, there's something still within him that says, not so. Because he goes on, after he says, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? You see, he's got the right analysis. He's lacking. There's something wrong, and he can't figure it out. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So, is Jesus saying here that all rich people can't go into heaven or they have to empty their bank account? He's not saying that. This man had an issue in his heart about money and stuff. Then Jesus laid his finger on that. And Jesus showed what it was. All right? So... But at any rate, he knows that he still lacks something. There's a deficiency in him. He knows. He knows. He cannot have eternal life despite all of his own righteousness or professed righteousness. Right? So we'll go on then. So let's look at the correctness of the analysis so far. The rich young ruler is lacking something. His own words, and Jesus agrees with him. He has an, what's he, what is he lacking? Well, he has original sin, that even if he had been perfect, all of these things, he hasn't dealt with his original sin. He has a problem where his obedience to God is only skin deep. He never goes deeper into the heart. He ignored the righteousness that God had offered, and he manufactured his own defective righteousness. And if any of us harbor any standard that we're okay measuring ourselves against men rather than measuring ourselves against God and seeing that we need the righteousness of another, we're in trouble. Just flat out we're in trouble. He forgot that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So his analysis is absolutely correct. He's lacking. Despite all his best efforts, he does not have what he wants. And he cannot have it. So let's go fifth to the right way. And this is perhaps a little bit longer here. The right way. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, shows the rich young ruler, indeed he shows us, the way of salvation. So before we get into his specific answer, I just want to go through a little bit of a depiction of this. Um, The depiction of the right way. False labors and false acquisitions, things acquired, compared to heavenly business. That's a problem, right? So we can return for a second to John 6, and I'm just going to read this briefly. 
Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Right? Don't labor for the things of this life that are fading and passing, that will not profit you in the end. When our, four, you know, when our 70 or 80 years is over, what are we going to have left? The bank accounts won't mean anything. Our possessions won't mean anything. The accolades of men won't mean anything. Jesus says, don't labor for that stuff, but labor for what does not perish which the Son of Man will give you. So you labor for it in a sense, but the Son of Man gives it to you, all right? For, because God has set his seal upon him. And they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And here's his answer. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent, right? So this is one aspect of the right way depicted. And also there's a cost of discipleship. And again, this is in Matthew 13, um, the kingdom is like a merchant seeking a beautiful pearl. And when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So there's an exchange here. We just keep that thought in your mind. And then there's an aspect of, of the right way being as hidden treasure. And again, this is Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he went and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. I like, when I read this, I think about the, the, the hymn, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See, Jesus, our Emmanuel. But this, this is a depiction of the right way. Not false labors, but the true labors. Counting the cost and finding the hidden treasure. But now Jesus will bring us in and focus our attention more with laser precision on the right way. And he does it with the rich young ruler by showing him three faults. He has a threefold fault. And Jesus exposes that not out of harshness, not out of meanness, but out of love. He shows the man where he's lacking. The first thing he shows him is he does not love God. He shows him essentially that money and wealth and perhaps the power and the preeminence of his heart is what he actually worships, right? Because he says to him, go and sell all you have. All that stuff that is so dear to you, chuck it. Get rid of it. Get, sell what you have. Get rid of your false god. Jesus calls him to remove all the false gods from his heart that he may truly love God, right? So first fault with the man, he does not love God. The second fault is he does not really love his neighbor. And we know this because he's a man of great wealth. And he's got neighbors about him that are in desperate need. And when Jesus says, sell what you have and go meet their needs, the man's grieved. He's grieved because he doesn't love his neighbor enough to help him. So he doesn't love God. He doesn't love man. And then finally, he hasn't believed in the Son of God. Well, how do I come to that conclusion? Well, Jesus calls him. Well, what does Jesus say to him? If you want to be perfect, in verse 21... Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. See, Jesus lays out the way for him. Sell your stuff, and come follow me. Well, he told him to follow him because he wasn't following him. He'd heard about Jesus, perhaps experienced the ministry, the signs, all of these things. He's come to Jesus for help, but he's not believing on him. But Jesus says, follow me. Well, where is he going to follow Jesus? To the next village? Is that what's in mind here? No. No. I think it, what is in mind here is Jesus is calling him, to, calling the rich young ruler to follow him in obedience 
to all of God's commands, follow him in self-denial, right? Because he's already called him to give up his possessions and take care of others. So follow Jesus in self-denial, to follow Jesus in love, truly loving God, truly loving man, perhaps calling him to follow him in suffering, maybe even to death, and follow him to resurrection because he's promised him eternal life if he does what he's told him to do and ultimately to glory. So Jesus is saying, you want eternal life. Here's what you do. Get rid of all the stuff that you have set your heart on. Put them aside and you come follow me. Follow the path I'm laying down before you. But he, he does not do it. He rejects what Jesus is saying, which is a deadly, soul-damning mistake. So the right way, the right way that Jesus showed us, if you truly desire eternal life, then forsake all things, all people, all pleasures, all privileges, all riches, all things, whatever they are, however they came to you, reject everything that has taken the place of God in your life, get rid of that and cast yourself upon the mercy and the love of God and follow Jesus. That way of eternal life will lead to glory and heaven for everyone who obeys it. We are called to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so far the man has had the right desire, the right question, the right source, even the right analysis, he's been shown the right way. But he makes the wrong response, right? Yes, makes the wrong decision. The man seemingly had the right desires, I've said. Despite all of these right things, and he's come to Jesus, he's come to the very best source. He's come to the Savior of mankind. He's come and spoken directly to the Prince of Peace to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and Jesus has bid him to come. He's got all of this going for him, and how does he react? He reacted very poorly. He's told to come, but he goes. He's offered joy, but he chooses sorrow. He, he gets it totally wrong. He, he turns and leaves the Lord Jesus. I cannot imagine a sadder position in the whole of the world. For somebody to be at the brink of eternity, to be on the edge of the kingdom, peering into the kingdom, and the gate is swung open, and they turn and walk away to their own destruction. I cannot think of anything sadder in my life. What can we learn from this then? So we'll move on to try to apply these things to us. I think the first thing we need to think about is this. We are very privileged to hear the answers of the Lord Jesus and his calls. Because in the recording of the scriptures, God had in mind us who hear them in this generation, as well as that rich young ruler. God has spoken to us in his word today. And we just have to ask ourselves, what am I going to do? What will I do? with the Lord Jesus laying out before me the way of salvation and marking it out clearly. And he's opened, as it were, the doors of heaven and bid us to come in. I hope none here will turn and walk away. But I want to turn for a moment to believers in this place. Some may be thinking, well, this is all about 
evangelism and this message is all for those who are outside the kingdom. But I want to press it home. I think it has some issues for us as believers. And why do I say that? Well, I say it for this reason. We need to ask ourselves, are we still forsaking all and following the Lord Jesus? Because selling all that he had was not a moment in time thing for the rich young ruler. Jesus did not intend that he empty himself and then go and earn it all back again and go right back to his old ways. Jesus never intended that. Selling was not a a moment in time task that he could go and do. He was told to sell it all and come follow Jesus. That is leaving it behind. Now, to me, this sort of sounds like a marriage vow, right? Um, Think about it as a marriage vow for a moment. If someone is getting married, I'm going to call him Mr. X, and if I get the names confused, hopefully you'll be able to follow me anyway. So Mr. X is going to marry Miss Y. And in the ceremony, there's, there's the, the charge or the statement or the vow, will you, forsaking all others, cleave to Miss Y? And Mr. X says, oh, yes. Now, they get married, all is well and good, and they go off. Is it okay now with Mrs. X, who was Miss Y, if Mr. X stops forsaking all others while he's married. Is she going to be okay with that? Certainly not. Is Jesus okay if we stop forsaking all other things but God and go back to the ways of the world? Is he okay if we go like a dog back to its vomit? Is that okay? No. You see, God calls us to forsake all other things and follow Jesus from the day he borns us again, as our pastor likes to say, it's terrible English, but from the moment we're saved until the moment we're brought to glory. We belong to Jesus, and we should be following him and forsaking all the things of this world until that day. How are we doing? We need to ask ourselves that. It's a challenging question. All right, we'll leave that there. But back again to those who are seeking. If there's anyone here seeking, and I don't know all you folks, but if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, You've been trying to find the way. You've been looking to find out, how do I get into heaven? How do I get right with God? You've come very, very close. You come to church. You hear the preaching of God's word. You hear the Lord dealing with somebody in your exact kind of position, and Jesus is showing the way, and you're right here. What do you do now? Do you turn and leave like the rich young ruler and go away sorrowful and deny yourself eternal life like he did? I hope not. I hope that's not the case. J.C. Ryle, and I'm just we'll close with this. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage, said, Salvation is an individual business. Everyone who wishes to be saved must have private dealings with Christ about his own soul. Right? It's not a group affair. It's not, we all come together in one great big party, we all just jam our way through the gate. It's a private matter. It's a private matter. Children aren't saved because of their parents, though their influence may be helpful. Husbands are not saved because of wives and vice versa. If you want to be saved, you have to have private dealings with Christ about your own soul. In fact, that's what Jesus was doing with the rich young ruler. He came, the rich young ruler came to have dealings with Christ. He asked all the right questions, got all the right answers, but he didn't follow through. The things he heard were not mingled with faith, and they left him empty and in deep trouble. 
The scriptures give us no other recording of him. We have no reason to believe that he ever came back and repented of his sins. We have no reason to believe that we who are believers when we die will see the rich young ruler at the at the uh, feet of, foot of the cross, or the foot of the throne, I should say, worshiping the Lamb. We don't, we don't believe that would be the case. So we must take seriously the Word of God individually for our own goods and have those dealings with God. And please join me as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the clarity with which you have given us this account of the Lord Jesus ministering to the rich young ruler and loving him and bidding him to come into the kingdom. We're thankful we've had an opportunity to think about it and we pray that it would sink deeply into our hearts and that you would work in us, those who believe, that we would in greater joy and faithfulness return to our Savior and serve you all of our days. And to those who are without, that they would come in to the kingdom and receive the the salvation of their souls. Father, we pray that you would do this and you would get the glory for only you can save that we ask these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen.